It's about a pressure. It's about a roar. So as we head into this third and final part of Viberlight promoter Gary Jack's exclusive, rare, first in 25 years interview with Raw the 90s Rave podcast, I'd like to apologise for some of the sound issues that you'll hear in this episode. Uh, They're not too bad, so do bear with it, but that is what happens if, like Gary, you live in the country and you record it on a potato. You're listening to Raw the Night is Ray podcast with me, Tom Latcham, still here with Gary Jack, the renowned Viberlite promoter. Uh, Going to continue our chat, talk about his best, his worst times, whether he ever came close to business and what he's up to now, because he's actually quite an impressive businessman. It might not surprise you, frankly, to be honest. Uh, Gary, how are you doing? Uh, just wanted to uh, talk to you a bit more about um, some of the bigger events that you put on. So you, you were, of course, a Mansfield. Oh, by the way, we should point out, if you're watching this on camera, he's moved, and there's a reason for that. He ran out of juice. Moved. Um, if you're listening on audio, ignore all that. Um, so, Gary, you put on events all around the country, um, and in the end, you know, you didn't go in to become one of those super sort of slamming vinyl type events. You would do joined-up ones generally, but you would go around the country. Would you change your music policy depending on where in the country you were putting on an event? No, no, we didn't. No, no. The music policy, the music policy changed. You know, as we pulled out the Tomorrow's World from Light, the techno side of things, to set up a separate night. It left us with just hardcore and drum and bass. But the re- way we got around that was the vice versa. So you'd have hardcore upstairs, downstairs, or in the back room, etc., etc. The the multi multi arena nine arena events is like I say allowed us to do that. But there's not many of those venues around the country, is there? So you know, um, again, um, I wouldn't say we changed our music policy at all, really. But you know, it's it, it, it it's evolved as the scene evolved. As new artists come on board, as the music got faster, it, it, it Viberlight evolved with that. Well, let's talk yeah. about that. Well, let's talk about that. What, what was your view on the scene splitting? Because when you first started the rave, you were a um, multi multi genre, uh, but towards the end, you were really, we would say, you were known as you became known as a hardcore event. What, what did you yeah, make we, of that? I think that happened when we left Venue Forty Four. When Venue Forty Four was finally closed down, and we moved up to Windsor Baths in Bradford. Um, fantastic venue, similar type to Venue 44. We could guide people in, so they got the experience of the one room and the wow factor when they came in. Um, but Bradford is a hell of a lot further from London than uh, the Mansfield. Mansfield was a nightmare drive for the London DJs. Bearing in mind, these DJs, you know, your Groovides, your Fabios, your Jumping Jack Frost, your Mickey Finns, they could probably get four or five bookings in London in one night. Coming out of Man- to, to Mansfield meant they could do probably one booking in Mansfield and then another booking in there. Coming to Bradford meant that was the only booking that they could do that night. So their DJ fees are tripled, which was understandably. You know, so to put a drum and bass DJ on, it went up from 350 to 700, 800 pounds. That had a massive effect on the, the budget side of things. Um, but because we'd introduced techno, I think Windsor Bath meant that we could then do Vibelite and Tomorrow's World together. So Tomorrow's World played in the background. We had resident DJs Grief and Strife who bought in the drum and bass, but it wasn't as big as the Mickey Finns. Uh, so eventually 
it, the drum and bass got dropped out of Rider Light, if you like. Uh, for, budget, for budgetary reasons? Not for monetary reasons as such. Um, that was a contributing factor. But the fact was there was no alternative. You know, by before we left Venue 44, like you say, you had hardcore upstairs and drum and bass downstairs. When hard, drum and bass was upstairs, you had hardcore downstairs. There was no facility to do that with that budget to put on a full lineup of drum and bass DJs and do a vice versa, you we was only charging 10, 15 pounds to get in. You know, you couldn't you couldn't uh, put a whole night on and double your DJ's fees without cutting back on production and stuff like that. Was and there any way was there any way that you that your ravers would have welcomed or accepted you continuing to follow a path of mixed genre arenas um because they were my like ravers or was that the community? no no I, I, like you say it evolved so fast and mansfield was probably one of the last places and this is why the djs liked it you could you, you could come and play drum and bass and hardcore and then you could play gabba techno like i say with the lenny d and the kenny ken situation so and it never moved the crowd was so appreciative mansfield was one of the last places that that could physically happen it was you know it's only it's inevitable that what was happening in london was eventually going to happen up here as people uh, as ravers themselves wanted more of what they wanted if you know what i mean as, as drum and bass artists wanted just nothing but drum and bass and as hardcore people wanted hardcore you know it, it's inevitable and so you didn't have clubs like die hard that set up which was just pure hardcore you know that that scene the split of the scene so you you know you had your drum and bass clubs you had your hardcore clubs you had your techno clubs and so when die hard was like the first real one that just said that we're just doing nothing but hardcore the split sort of happened then if you know what i mean and uh, there was no turning back from that because people and ravers had already you know was uh they got what they wanted out of it, you know what I mean? They they want, went to the music that they wanted, so if they was, you know, if they couldn't dance all night long to drum and bass, then they'd go to an event that did provided that facility, basically. And so some of these yeah. big raves that you did put on, um, you probably started coming into contact with some of the other big raves as rivals. Um, <laughs> do you have any... What are you laughing for? I know why you're laughing. I, 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 I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm you know, Basically, leading you down a path that you're going to tell me a story. But um, what sort of did you then? St you, you mentioned earlier sort of promoters' games. I mean, that sort of seems like quite a nice way of putting it. But um, what sort of stuff are you experiencing from other promoters? Well, uh, at the time, it really did sort of mess with my head. But and I, I blame certain artists and certain DJs for the demise of the, the, the hardcore scene. And back then, I fairly did believe that. You know, I really did believe that. Um, but looking now and having time to step back from the scene, it was just the natural progression, really. Um, a, a funny story was, um, when was quite early on in Bible and uh, I... Uh, met Murray at a, I think it was at Great Yarmouth. What a hell of a drive that was. Bad enough going to Skegness from Mansfield, but going to Great Yarmouth is a four-hour drive to go to a, a complex there. 
And then I met Murray. I was at the bar at the time, and the uh, Murray had a crew of about 12, 15 people with him. And uh, I was at the bar. I said, Do you want a drink, Murray? He says, Yeah. So I got him a drink, and then he got him one for Stacy, and then one for Vanessa, and then one for Jim, and then one for someone else. Ended up buying a round of drinks for about 14 people. Uh, and he took the drinks, and then I didn't see him the rest of the night. <laughs> Just disappeared, totally disappeared. And I thought, what an idiot, <laughs> you know. And then at the end of the night, he came up to me and he says, um, this is early on, I'm not talking like the third or fourth event of Ibelite. And you went, and spoke to me all night, and you came up to me and went, I like you, you know. He says, you know that trick that I pulled on at the bar? I went, what trick? He went, where I got you to buy everybody a drink, and then I just left you. He went, I went, yeah, yeah. He went, um, get used to them, mate. That's what promoters do. I went, really? I had witnessed that. You know, up, up north, we were helping each other out. We was making sure that, you know, like I said before, we were helping each other out. If we got tapes cheaper, we shared that information. We helped people. We we didn't book artists that we knew that was going to be at destruction, so I, I wouldn't book their artists. Was, you know what I mean? It was... It wasn't like that at all. So to to get that, you know, and he gave me this 30 quid and I went, wasn't naive. I said, Murray, I think, I appreciate you're going to give me the money for the drinks, but I think that probably that's going to be the best 30, 40 quid I'm going to ever spend in this scene. Um, you telling me, <laughs> telling me to watch out for promoters' tricks and things like that. But... It was all done in fun and haste. I mean, I would say Murray and Dave Prattley was the sort of arch enemies because they both started in the same club, for instance. And so they had, you know, they, everybody was copying everybody, you know, and everybody was, if I did something well, somebody else had copied me. You know, Murray copied me, I copied Murray, you know, certain things. It was it was all about part of that, you know. Um, it come home after I'd come back from Australia, um, I think the bigger promoters in the scene at the time thought when I left to go to Australia that would be the last they see of me. Uh, but when I came back into the country and I announced um, that we was doing a fantasy island that's bigger and better than ever before in 2002, um, back at the theme park, it was the same time that Slamming Vinyl had got an odd, uh, big New Year's Eve event on. And they really took it personally that I was having, um, having this um, this thing that they thought was I was against them. They seen it as competition. Um, like I say, back then I did bear quite a bit of malice to slamming vinyl. I'll explain the reasons behind this as well and why I think certain things happened. Um, I got involved with a guy from Sal when he come back from Australia. When I did, when I come back from Australia, um, I'd had enough. Putting events on in Australia was so much easier than uh, over here. I went over with some of the Lincoln boys who've got work permits. I ain't got a work permit. Um, I wasn't allowed to work. Um, but I got involved with a promoter over there who, who met me at the airport and said he wanted to use the Viber like name, etc., etc. Could I book the DJs? Um, so I said, well, how do you promote around here? Back then, don't forget, we was outside the clubs every single night, flying, you know, five clubs a night. How does it, Australia is so vast, how do you promote over here? Went, oh, it's easy. 
four weeks before we just put an advert in the paper. This is the venue we're using. This is the lineup. And then, and then two weeks before, then a week before, and the, everybody gets that paper. I went, really? That's what you've got to do? <laughs> I said, you haven't got to run around the country and fly, is that? No, we don't even, we don't even do fly. It's just an advert in a, the local paper that wow. everybody picks up on a Thursday. So I, I said, okay, but I'm here on, on holiday. I'm here for a rest. Uh, so I had to do was book the DJs. I let them sort the sounds out, let them sort the venue out. Wherever I was, the conditions was, they flew me back to the venue on the night of the event and flew me back. So it was an internal flight. It's about 100 quid. It was all part of the expenses. So when I got back from Australia, I was not prepared to go back to this way of, of you know promoting. And there was something come about. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. The internet. <laughs> <laughs> no, what's that? If, before I left Australia, there was nothing like that. We had, we had computers back, back then, just before I left Australia. But this internet had come around. So my competition being slamming vinyl at the time, bless, bless his soul, Murray had died, obviously, in the horrific car crash that he had, uh, was slamming vinyl. They'd taken take over the, the role of... Um, working out to become one of the biggest promoters in the scene, if you know what I mean, uh, and held that for quite a long time. So, But my grief with them really was personal, I think. I got involved with Sal. When I got back from Australia, I didn't want to do the events. So Sal said he came to me through Paul Draycott. Paul Draycott was another back, uh, a backbone of Viberlite when Glenys and Dave left. Paul picked up the slack there, and he was doing all the. He was all to the internet side. He was he was he was onto it. He took, looked after that for me really, uh, and introduced me to Sal. And Sal wants to put some money in and put an event on, and I didn't want to do it. We came up with the street in Skegness. We did something there. Um, we fell out massively at an event, which I can go on to do later on. I'll go in, explain that later. But it was a different ball game. So when I got back, it was 1999. We did a few events. Uh, we wasn't seen as a threat because we wasn't doing anything really big. But then when we announced um, the 2002, the rave we were just on about, the one that was freezing cold, is bigger and better than ever before. We was going to use Fantasy Island Complex, plus we was going to use two huge warehouses on site, that was as big as the sanctuary in themselves. Um, it was uh, there was some conflict, I think, to say. Um, we'd come back into the country and I'd only ever spoke to one person um, about doing the Hardcore Awards. And it was MC Storm. So the only person that knew that we was going to do that was MC Storm. And the next thing I knew in 2002 that Slamming Vinyl was doing the award ceremony, right? So I told Storm this idea. Bearing in mind while I'd been away, um, again, Slamming Vinyl were very drum and bass orientated. They had no idea about the hardcore scene, and they'll admit that to themselves. They had some knowledge, but they didn't have the knowledge of what Ravers really wanted and the way it was going. So they put people in charge of their hardcore arenas like Hixie to do the DJ lineup and Storm to do the MC lineup. And that sort of power goes to some people's heads sometimes. 
you know, and um, the whole thing with um, slamming vinyl came to a head in, bearing in mind, right, bearing in mind, when I was with Sal, we um, approached the place where the Hardcore Heaven Weekend at Hauntings, and we looked at that, me and Sal looked at that, and we based it over a three-event strategy, like everything that we've ever done was a three-event strategy. So we'd have to work over three years before we'd actually make any money. So we wasn't prepared to take that chance at the time because the, the financial gains for the two years, we couldn't sustain it because it was too much of a risk and we'd end up going bust. So slamming, we invited Slamming Vinyl up to see the venue on the chance that we'd do it together, right? We didn't do it together. And before we knew it, Slamming Violin just took it from underneath us and went. I, I bear no malice for that, right? The fact that the hardcore weekender, when all the hard house weekenders were going on, you know, the house music weekend, it was a part of a natural progression. We couldn't do it. That event needed to happen. If Slamming thought they could do it, then fair be it. We let them use all our databases. We let them use all our mailing lists. We helped them promote that event. So when I came back into the country and put this 2002 idea on, and then Slabby Vinyl are doing these award ceremonies and stuff like that, I was fucked off, to be honest. So I said that we was going to do the official hardcore awards, the official hardcore awards. And we were going to do it at Leicester University in 2006. So this is four years after um, the big event. So that was four years from 2002 when we come back and pulled off Fantasy Island with the biggest ever crowd. Um, was nasty four years when, you know, when the, you know, when I was, when Paul O was mentions about the Dance Music Association, when we was all called into a meeting to try and sort out the problems that the scene had, had, had started to develop, right? And it was about setting DJ's fees and MC's fees. It was about setting hours and about working together. But how could you work together with someone that, you know, the promoter who, in my opinion, had bought the way into the scene, don't forget Slamming Vinyl was just the record shop at the time. They knew the capabilities of what tape packs were selling. They became promoters, like I became a promoter. I have no right to that. But it's how they then bought United Dance and then they bought Uproar and Hardcore. Or, or, you know, they bought so, so many and bought their way into the scene. And I personally, if it hadn't been them, don't get me wrong, it could have been any other person. But I've only come to realise that later. So I've seen them as an enemy from 2002 to 2006. And it boiled to head when I did the Hardcore Awards in 2006 at Leicester University. I'd moved out of Mansfield. And uh, during that, the event was happening in June. And I think the house in Mansfield had received a letter in May from a solicitor that I hadn't received it. Right? And I hadn't received it until I had no idea what was going off. Between those times, uh, DJs was turning me down for bookings, saying I wasn't paying enough. So that's from the 2002, from when we tried to sort it out with the Dance Music Association that was set up. That's as far as it got. It was clearly obvious 
people wanted to take part and control the scene. And to me, it was that's never going to happen. You, you're not, you can't control something that just naturally evolves. The way that the scene naturally evolved, you know, from pigeonhole in the music, you, 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 you try to own something, control something like that, you've got to be either very, very rich or very, very stupid, I think. So I never thought that that was going to work. And it, it come out that Dance Music Association, and I said to Paulo, that's never going to work. I, I can't see. They wanted... They wanted little clubs to pay the same price as big events, so they standardised the DJ's wages. There was a big thing about tape packs moving on to CD packs and sort of things like that. You know, uh, Me, I was trying to hit these problems head on, right, and try to deal with the people that shouted the most about CD packs were probably Brisk and Scott Brown. But you have to understand why. They, you know, bear in mind, we earned our money from the CD packs and the merchandise, the you know, they got the DJs was earning money from things like bonkers and the albums and stuff like that. And they were earning big money from that. So there was this element of turning from CD pack from tape pack into CD pack. And the tape packs was a way in the olden days of promoting a new DJ that came to the scene. So everybody knew that that's how the DJs became big. You know, I mean, it was an unwritten rule. So, yeah, um, it came to head with the slamming vinyl and the hardcore awards thing, and I wasn't aware of what was actually happening. In the meantime, I was aware that the DJs were trying to turn me down. They was being booked under a, a rave, a baby artist, and no one would ever say it, but, you know, you ring up, and I'd, I'd be ringing six months in advance to try and book DJs, and they still wasn't available, and the bookings was not that far in advance, you know. So things were happening, I was telling things, um, and it was all the tricks that promoters were pulling on each other, but I wasn't pulling the tricks. I was just the brunt of the tricks, if you like. Right. So it came to head with the, the 2006 event, and I went down to the venue a week prior to the event happening, and the venue said to me that they'd been hit with a season desist order from Slamming Vinyl, <laughs> from the solicitor. I, I know nothing about it. So I said, why? What's happening? He said, you you're trying to pass off as them or something. And I, I, I have no idea. I've got no idea what you're on about. So they showed me the solicitor's letter. And while I was in the office there, I rang the solicitors up and I said, uh, what's all this about? Well, Sam and Vinyl have been doing hardcore awards, awards since 2002, after I told Storm about the idea and he gave it to them. Um, and... Uh, they wanted to see some desist and it was going to affect them and it's just like I'd never experienced if I'd got beef with a promoter we'd spoke face to face about it this was mm. new to me you know what I mean it was like it was a blow blow they wouldn't pick up the phone they wouldn't talk to me they wouldn't explain anything so I had to deal directly with this listen bear in mind we gave them hardcore having weekender you know we gave that venue because it needed to be done it's the least I expected so to be hit with a solicitor's letter I've got a letter here somewhere um, uh, I kept it to this very day. <laughs> uh, and they was going to sue us for lots of earnings, this, that, and the other. So I just um, said to the not, solicitor, not cheap, when letters. I got that... Sorry? Not cheap, those legal Sorry, letters. Tom? They're not cheap, those no. legal letters. No, they're not cheap. No, they're not cheap. And they used... When I looked into the solicitors they used, it was a proper passing-off agent... 
you know, the expert in that field. So rather than send Mike get solicitor involved, which, you know, once you get solicitors involved, it's, there's only one winner, really, the solicitors. Uh, I, I had to head on. I rang the solicitors, spoke to the guy, and I said, well, why is this? I said, mine's the official hardcore awards. Yours is just the award ceremony. You're passing off as this, you're passing off as that. You're doing this, you're doing that. And we want a cease and desist order. This was three days prior to the event actually happening, I think, when I got this, when I actually got this notice. This was the 4th, 12th or 13th of June, and the event was the 16th or 17th or something like that. I had no idea that this was actually happening because I'd moved out. I hadn't received this letter that was sent out in May to me. This letter's like, I hadn't got it. And I have got it now, like I say. So I, I, I spoke to the solicitor and I went, well, how can you class me as passing off? when I clearly got some flyers at home from Venue 44, when we did an award ceremony, we did a, a quarterfinals and a semifinals, quarterfinals, a semifinals and the finals, and we announced the winners of the drum and bass section, the best MC for drum and bass, the best hardcore MC, the best techno. So when I got, I, I said to the guy, I would agree that the awards wouldn't take place and we wouldn't take any voting forms in with the solicitor in principle. I said, but no way was I allowing, the event was not going to happen. They wanted the event to be cancelled there and then. And I told them that if I got back home and I sent these flyers to their solicitor and they could <laughs> see that I'd done these in 1994 and 95, that if anyone was passing off on anyone, it was Slammy Vinyl that was passing off on me. <laughs> Right, and if they hadn't closed my event down, then I would counter sue slamming vinyl, and I would be presenting this as court as my evidence, right? Which their solicitor agreed that that slamming vinyl had got a leg to stand on, and I agreed not to do the hardcore, the official hardcore evidence or uh, hardcore awards, and the event went ahead. Yeah, because at the end of the day. Back then, that's 2006. This is, you know, this is, what, 93, 13, 14 years after Vibalite started. The only people that was going to move, lose out on that was the ravers, the ravers that paid their money to come to that event. So it was still raver-focused all the way along. I wasn't doing it because it was the money, because it wasn't an, an event. And, and that's the sort of event where I think we fell out with Sal from Slamming uh, from Sal. Uh, this event. Yeah, tell us tell us about that because a few yeah. people have asked what went down with Sal, who was one of your latter day business partners in Vibelite. Yeah, <sighs> Sal was a genuine enough guy. Did the work that he wanted to do. Said what he was going to do. Um, but as a promoter, you can't participate in uh, at your own events. You can't participate in the everyday things that associated with raves. And that event was stressful enough, understanding what we'd just been through with slamming vinyl. For anyone who can't uh, read between the lines event, there, Gary, uh, you're talking about getting on it. Taking gear. Taking gear, yeah. You don't do that at your own event. You're, you're responsible as you know, which we learned by the second or third event at Viber Light, you can't be mm. off your head and have the responsibility of all those people. It's just unprofessional and you, you can't do it. <laughs> so 
I'm dealing with all this from Slamming Rhino. Uh, the event had got to go ahead. Uh, Sal had come to the event. It opened at 9 o'clock. At 10 o'clock, he was nowhere to be found. At half 10, 11 o'clock, I found him absolutely off his tits. And I just come to fuck off home, basically. And I didn't ever want to see him again. I was stressed. I was stressed. <laughs> Promoted to stress. Uh, and I think that event really encapsulated that I've had enough now. I've had enough. Uh, I don't need... This is not the scene that I was involved in. You know what I mean? Uh, I personally blame the responsibility for the way that design had gone on slamming vinyl shoulders, on size shoulders, uh, not size shoulders, on storm shoulders for the, you know, the, the, the role. But again, looking back now, it's the way that the scene evolved. Um, if I don't like it, get out of it. Do you know what I mean? So... I was left with no choice to get out of it. And I always had this thing that Five Life didn't ever want to be the biggest. We just simply wanted to be the best. And with all the new talent that's coming through, the uh, infrastructure that was being put in place by promoters and DJs to not allow me to have certain DJs or for them certain DJs to outprice what I thought was outpricing themselves, compared to what I thought it was worth, compared to other artists that were bigger than them, you know, uh, it was coming through, you know, you know like anyone charging more than Slipmat, for instance, was ridiculous, because Slipmat was the godfather, he'd earned that respect, he'd earned that wage, so someone to come in and try charging double what Slipmat was, was, it was, it was a fixed rate, you know what I mean, it was, um, for instance, um, the, the breakup with Storm really was, he came to me, it was that 2002 event, and being paid um, four times as much as what you want to pay me to do New Year's Eve. I, I want to go exclusive for them. Then go exclusive for them. I'm not paying you anymore. So, you know, I was, I was probably part to blame as much as anyone by not, by not giving in to the pressures that I was put under by certain DJs and MCs uh, and in the event that that had an effect. Um, but we went on to... Uh, realised that and then we tailor made events to fit venues so we took a different aspect to that and we went back to Leeds and we found a venue that had got three rooms and this was when everyone's doing 45 minute sets um, attention span of ravers was apparently according to Storm no more than 45 minutes and so I went in there with a nope DJs are going to come, and I think DJs can play three-hour sets. So we tried the triple crescendo. We booked DJs that would, we had a warm-up DJ, and then a DJ that would play a full three-hour set. But we didn't pay them any more than what they were paying for an hour set, which didn't go down too well with the DJs. So it was never going to last long, you know what I mean? You can only get an artist to do it once or twice. You know what I mean? Because they were turning down... This is the time when there's loads of events going on and they were turning down bookings. But that worked really, really well. You know, and that, so, and that so, was just... Sorry? Sort of, uh, just want to talk to you, because you, you, you said this was all built towards where you decided to call it quits and not, not do it anymore. And, and that was in 2006. How did you feel 
about that decision? Did you did you wrestle with it for a long time, or was it something that you were just convinced by straight away and just knew? Uh, and and then how did you feel just walking away, knowing that big part of your life, a time of, of all right, a lot of, a lot of frustration, but a huge amount of joy by the sounds of it was over. Uh, it was over in some respects, as in to the fact that um, it was over as far as the hardcore scene was about. But taking the principles of what we learned, the three event structure, there was other scenes. I'd moved up north. I was in uh, Manchester now. So there was another scene that we'd, we'd, we'd seen an, an advantage to possibly taking over which was the bounce scene, the Wigan Pier type scene. You know, the Wigan Pier was a, a super little club, held about five or 600 people, packed the rafters every weekend. Such an atmosphere in there, like the old raving days, you know, like the venue 44 days. And it was a scene that hadn't experienced the professionalism of the rave scene, if you like. It was being run by ravers. And... It was a chance for me to achieve what I hadn't achieved in Vibe Light and rise to the top of that scene, uh, which is the only thing that I hadn't achieved, really, in the hardcore scene. In my opinion, I hadn't achieved in the hardcore. I'm sure Ravens might see me as being different, but we never put the biggest hardcore event on, you know, or at the time we were still structured to 1,000, 2,000 people. Uh, but Bounce Seven allowed me to go and do my business with all the things. Started music, started off with AJ. AJ was a raver that used to come to Vibe Live. One of those MCs that do your editing that constantly, constantly, constantly wants to go on the MC. He was a character, still is a character to this day. And he wanted to do an hardcore event. And he wanted to do something with me. And I said, no, let's do Bounce. So we started Bounce Seven. Uh, up north in Preston, and within and it was an instant success like Vibrolite. We did it over the three event structure basis. Um, because I set it up with AJ, uh, he wanted to be a part of Vibrolite like so, but Vibrolite was my baby. So we set this up uh, on the off chance that if we was to split, um, AJ owned Bounce 7. And you could do with what you want with it. But we've got to get it to the top of the table, and that's all I wanted out of it. So I just achieved everything that I wanted to achieve from the dance music scene, not necessarily in the rave scene as such, but I just had to prove that I could do what I wanted to do, you know what I mean? It's, it's more of a, a challenge than anything else. Uh, but I had other business interests all the way through coming back from Australia back in 2000, right up to 2006. So it was more of a a back burner than a, a, a living, if you know what I mean. So, well, I'll tell you, you what, know, Gary. What, we're gonna, what, what, what we'll do, Gary, is we're going to talk to you about your uh, your business now and what you do because you're a fascinating man and you've got loads of. I, honestly, I know you live in pie country, but you've got so many fingers in so many pies. Uh, we'll talk about that very shortly here on the Raw the Nineties Rave Podcast. If you want to get in touch, hello at the Nineties ravepodcast.co.uk if you want to donate to keep this going uh, we are much obliged as a team of four working very hard to make this uh, happen on a regular basis you can go to gofundme uh, for, forward slash the 90s uh, yes gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast that's a gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and we're on all of your social media channels so go and hit us up everywhere hey! 
We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw. But now's where we ask you, inevitably, for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages out of this project to create this podcast. And it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that, thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, We've got big, big plans for the future, but we aren't gonna be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're gonna need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favorite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you hope you're enjoying it so we're going to come into the modern day now and uh, talk to Gary Jacques, who's the legendary Viberlite promoter. It's been a fascinating insight into what it took to run a rave in the 90s, the fr- the highs, the lows uh, and all in between. Uh, but let's find out a little bit about what he's up to now. And, and, and Gary, you did um, you did do a, a comeback of sorts, or rather you attempted a comeback of sorts in 2018 with the We Love Knots Festival, but it didn't go ahead. Briefly, let us know what happened there with that and why it didn't go ahead and how that made you feel. I, I, I've turned loads of things like this down with people wanting to do things for me or want me to put events on in clubs and stuff. And it's, it's, it, it's, everything that has been thrown at me was something that I'd already done, already done, if you know what I mean. But this guy approached me from Mansfield. as a Mansfield guy. Uh, and he wanted to put uh, an all-day event on something that we hadn't done in the past. He wanted to do it in Mansfield, the birthplace of Vibelite. It was our 25th anniversary. Um, I hadn't got much work on because I was building onto what I'm, I'm actually doing now. The timing was right. Um, I checked into the guy's finances. He'd got the money to do the event. We did it over three, it was going to be done over three events, over three years. The first year, we wouldn't make any money. The second year, we'd break even. The third year, we'd do uh, certain things. Uh, and it's go and it's a go over. So it's going to become an annual event, uh, a one-off, one event a year, which I could probably commit to at that particular time. Um, the venue, he was a guy that wants to do events, illegal events in forests, um, I wasn't into that. I don't think it was fair on the ravers. I don't think it's fair on the public at the, the time. We'd moved on much further than that. It's had to be a licensed event. Uh, he had to apply for a license. He had all the right attitude to take for the license. The uh, the police officer he was dealing with had actually found him the venue, the actually land that we was going to use. Everything was set up. The tickets went on sale. We got the initial go-ahead, um, and 
it was the same year as the World Cup. England did a lot better than anticipated. Um, it was going to fall on the same day as an England World Cup, which we didn't know at the time, and we were planning it back in a year before it was actually going to happen. And it was just a massive reunion back in the town we was going to, you know, going to do it at. It was originally for five thousand people. I thought it was for too many people. I wanted it to come down to three thousand on the original one, keep the cost down, but get the atmosphere there and build from there. Um, it was going to the promoter decided the, the uh, finance guy decided he was going to run three buses from Mansfield to the site. Um, but what he hadn't done is he hadn't put those three buses back on in the night time to take the people back into Mansfield. Three weeks prior to the event, uh, there was two accidents and the death of a motorbike uh, guy outside the venue because it was just basically walked onto a road that had no pavements. Um, so the police was upset that people wasn't going to go on, get back onto buses. And they've just been pouring out into the street at 12 o'clock uh, on a fast-moving 60-mile-an-hour single-lane, country-lane track, basically. Uh, so they wasn't happy about that. We uh, tried everything we possibly could do. We made it a factor that you had to have, when you bought your ticket, you got a free ticket through the ticket company, um, Skiddle. You had to get on a bus to come home. Um and that was a massive expense that we was prepared to go to, but the licensing authority didn't believe that that's what we was going to do, even though we'd got contracts to say that that was going to happen. In the end, um, with the, with the, what I'm in now, uh, I, I'm a uh, on the National Market Traders Executive Board. That had led me to uh, an organisation for the independent festival organisations. So I knew... Simon Kemp a little bit better, so I got their solicitors involved in it. They and they, they said that the police had been using these as tactics to stop these sort of events happening up and around the country. And we fought the case, we fought the case, and until it got to a stage where we needed a week to build the site safely, and it got to that day when we were supposed to be building the site. And this law case was still going on. We had a couple of days that we could possibly do everything, uh, but we were still fighting the case when those two days come on. Um, There's no way we could build that safe settly. And when the police threw this evidence that there'd been these accidents at me around the site, show me these accidents and the death of this motorcyclist and the, the, um, the risk to the public, um, I decided that uh, I'd seen enough evidence. Bear in mind, the event had sold out, or I think there was 30 tickets left at this point, or something like that. Um, it's a hard decision to make, and um, the people that was coming were all 40, 50. The biggest ticket sellers were 40 to 50 age range. It wasn't going to be a normal type of rave for all youngsters. It was a reunion. Uh, it, it wasn't about the money, like I say, we would lose money on the first event, we knew we were going to lose money on the first event. Um, and then I decided to pull it because we couldn't build a safe, the set in the safe, 
the time it was done. We could infrastructure, you know, getting the people off, but they weren't prepared to accept that. In the end, they accepted it. The two days prior to the event happening, by that time, I, I pulled it. But we were fighting that case right up until that time. And then when we... And, 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 and it knocked me for six, to be honest. Massively knocked me for six. And like you say, because everybody was so excited, it was doing a, a Venue 44 reunion in the house tent. So it was a mixture of house tent. We had a drum and bass arena. We had a hardcore arena. And uh, the week before the event, I was uh, emailing um, Whiskhead. And I structured the entire event and it was going to be something that we'd never seen before we're just going to try and reconstruct the first ever Bible Light event uh, and what we did at the first event uh, Whiskid was going to be the compared for the entire night we booked him as an exclusive so he was privileged to all these things that was going to go on there was going to be drones flying around the site that was filming the crowd and putting it onto stages something that had never been done before we'd got um, a brass band an old rave artist that was playing that would have stopped the music and then they would have come from the back of the crowd and worked their way down to the dance floor and then they did a, um, a an orchestral bit all rave tunes all old rave tunes Wicked. you know and a piano on the stage etc etc we'd got a dj that we'd been following on the crafty radio station that we'd organised from with his missus to pull him out of the crowd to get up and do a 45 a 30 minute set. We got another MC who had gone his wife his miss had got in touch with him. It's his birthday. He'd never MC'd before. And we're going to put these two together and it was going to be it was going to be about the rave was taking part in the rave and it's going to be no, about so the amount of effort and work that I'd put into that, it was it would have been a phenomenal event, you know, something that even 25 years later was still innovating and we were still breaking those moulds that we've come accustomed to being, you know, known, known for. And, um, and did, 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 it, did, did, that, did that failure and it knocking you for sick put you off doing any events in future? Because uh, a few people uh, have been asking, including Bryn Bull. Thank you for your question. If you want to get in touch, by the way, with any future questions, hello at the 90s Rave podcast.co.uk. Head to our social media channels. Bryn Bull uh, asked, would you do any more events? What might tempt you? <laughs> I would never say never, but I am getting older. <laughs> and there's only one four o'clock. In Look, we're all getting older, mate. mate. <laughs> uh, and I think to capture the people that was there at the beginning, you know, they they have got alternative lives. They've got they've got kids, they've got businesses, they've got etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The timing for the 25th anniversary was right. Being in mind now, I'm heading up this 140 million pound regeneration project in Warrington Market, basically, and I I've gone back to market trading. I've set up different businesses. I've been involved in helping youngsters become business people and become market traders and developing their careers. And I'm, I'm playing mentor to like five or six different traders that have helped through those. Um, I, I, I got a, a fruit and veg lad who became the national market trader that stops at Warrington. There was this compound that was being built, the regeneration of the town centre to make it into a 21st century market with a food court and there's a 12 million pound budget just to build the market 
but the market was just the the heart of it and then there was going to be areas built with all cafes and street foods and stuff like that and the the market would be there six days a week but the the specialist events was going to be like food festivals and vegan festivals and fairy festivals and you know car shows and so they was all going to take place around the market but then obviously covid's hit the market's open recently but all that back all those entertainments and all that event structure is what i'm trying to bring to to warrington so and and i've got a lot more people relying upon me to do that so i have my my um, motives have, have changed uh, i haven't got time to put the events on as such uh, and my focus is on creating this in warrington basically and creating this um uh, this town that will become hopefully renowned for the events that it does that, that it does and restructuring uh, what we class as uh, shopping today you know what i mean it's more about shopping's dying it's gone online so rather than you know you, you don't go out shopping you're going out to an event you're going out to a food festival you're actually shopping and you're spending time at those festivals there's going to be some music festivals in there but it's all encompassed around with the shopping aspects and mostly based on family orientated things and that pleasure. seems to be seems to be a long-winded way of by the way thank you for saying what you're up to these days means i don't have to ask you that but uh, that seems like an incredibly long-winded way of saying probably not i'd say probably not <laughs> i'd say probably not at the moment because what i've got planned i would say if it doesn't happen before the 30th anniversary it's never going to happen so i've got three years <laughs> I've got three years, so if it doesn't happen within the next three years, I'd like to, not about the money, it's about coming and getting all those waivers of supporters in the very first days and seeing what's happened to them. I'm in touch with quite a few of them, but you know, we're talking thousands and thousands of people. I'd like to see where their lives have left, if they've got kids and what it means to them and what Viber I know what Viber Light means to them. They tell me... You know, they tell me all the time. I went to Australia, the other side of the world, and, and you know, to try and get away from the rave scene and the tax and everything, you know, the all that shit I'd been through. And as soon as I got off the plane, someone called to me and shut me out and thanked me for being the best years of his life. You're the other side of the world. Do you know what I mean? So I, I know what Viber Light means to people. I know what it's meant to the scene. But, you know, the whole point of me doing this podcast is hopefully... We can bring the whole scene back together. We can talk, like I say, we can talk through these grievances that we've had with other promoters and other artists and understand it was what it was for whatever reasons and whatever those promoters wanted out of the scene. I hope they got what they wanted out of the scene, whatever artists wanted out of the scene. But look at what we've created. And if this is coming out of this pandemic, when we're all thinking about the good times that we used to have, you know, let this be the good thing that comes out of the pandemic. You know, let, let promoters have their say. Let DJs and MCs have their say. Let's build up what this scene is. It's going to be with us for, you know, the, like I say, the mods and the punks, teddy bears and rockers and that. It's only 10, 20 years. This is 30 years. 30 years, and it's still going on. Do you know what I mean? We are history. 
you know, you know, dreamscape fly is that, you know, history in the making. Well, we are history in the making. This is history. And with the recent death of Bogey, the recent, you know, the death of Murray Beeston and, you know, Tony DeVix and the Stevie IPDs, these people haven't had a chance to tell the story on what part they played in it. And I think that's what's got me to come to do this podcast and hopefully get other artists and DJs and promoters to come and tell their story. And it's all a rich tapestry of the rave scene, isn't it? You know what I mean? And let's go back as far as we can. I'd like to see, you know, James Perkins and the people that run Shelley's and the people that run Amnesia. I don't even know if they're alive. You know what I mean? I'd like to understand their perspective a bit more before my time, before I was a raver. Because Fantasia was immense as a raver. It hit the buttons. He was a businessman. He was no different to Slamming Vinyl. I didn't see that. But I didn't hold Slamming Vinyl. I didn't well, hold bit... Fantasia in the same respect that I'd hold Slamming Vinyl in. So we, I was wrong been, about uh... that. We've been speaking uh, a little bit to James uh, Fantasia, and then we we've agreed to do an interview with him. But he's uh, got some stuff. He's, he's a, a successful businessman with stuff to sort out. But he he himself has said that he's not necessarily against the idea of a return of Fantasia. Another one of the big uh, and a lot of this has come from COVID, I think, as well, and people realizing how much they missed it. But another a lot of talk has been about a skelter skelter comeback. So uh, I want to wonder what your thoughts are on that. There's a lot of talk of Helter Skelter coming back, isn't there? Um, but I don't think it's in the intentions. I think... I don't think it's Dave and Penny's intentions. I think they've moved on with their life and understanding that, similar thing to me, you're never going to get that. What it was then is not what it is today. You know, we, we didn't have mobile phones. We had mobile phones, but we didn't have cameras. You know, it's a different era. You imagine some of the faces we was pulling in 1993 they popped up on social media and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't that. know what you're talking about, Gary. You know what I mean? It was like everybody was gurneying <laughs> and everybody was pulling faces and everyone was whizzing the tits off and stuff like that. You, you can't you can't have that in today's society. We've moved forward. It's progressed. It's, it's evolved, hasn't it? You know, um, and you can't control that. And if you try to control that, you're going to get burnt like people have. So... Um, I think when we come out of the pandemic, it would be a good time to do an event once people have got confidence that they can mix in crowds again. Yes, but will these artists be about? Is it going to be somebody else that's running Elter Skelter? It should happen if it's Dave and Penny, but I don't think that's the case. I think someone's trying to buy in to re recreate something that will never be what it was. Uh, well, I, I'm not. I think you might be wrong there. My sources tell me that Dave is interested in doing this, but he's gonna see how the land lies. Let it go. Who, who, who was interested? Off top of, I don't actually know who's behind trying to rebring it back. Uh, well, I mean, Majika's been pushing it a lot, of course, as you'll know. But, oh, um, is he? Like, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but, um, so, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, if you, can, if, 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 if you can make it work, then you can make it work. But I do know that Dave is considering it. There was a. Uh, he was considering bringing it back before coronavirus and now coronavirus has happened. It's definitely a thought. Whether it happened or not, I don't know. But it's, it's definitely not just... I, I, I think it. if it comes back, I think David Prattley has definitely got to have something to do with it somewhere along the line. And he's got to be present and at I think, the event. He's got to be putting the down. 
think actually, Gary, it's the same as you. I think that for him and for you, it seems to me that money isn't necessarily the driver. You do if you do fine, and it's not about money. It's about whether you can put on something that is going to maintain that maintains those events, helps the Bibleites, old traditions, and does something a bit new and exciting, and isn't just another mill thing. And I think that's probably a fair summarization of yeah. both of your positions. And, and more so with, with Dave. I mean, he's achieved everything that he wanted to achieve. He's done the double sanctuary, he's done the big outdoor event. So where do you go from it? You know, does he do an all day? Does he, he might he might do an all day and have the same possibility as me? What I will say is, Gary, though, is the technology and the sound and the lighting has moved on so much now that actually you could do something that was way beyond uh, what Helter Skelter and what Viber Light used to be. Whether or not it's it lives with other events, yes, you know, now is another matter. That's another question. But I think that's funny. It's about a fresh up. It's about a roar. Listen, just we're, we're, we're running out of time. I want a quick couple of quick final questions, and they're both from uh, our audience. Uh, Liam Feely asks, "What was your favourite year to promote parties for Bob Light, and why?" The favourite year to promote parties, I I think in the beginning, I think before I knew what it meant to be a promoter. Uh, it was all new to us, so the 93-95 era, I think, was good. The, 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 the progression of the events and, and the understanding the progression of the event, understanding what you what our, our ravers' needs changed as they went along and experienced raves and, and trying to capture, constantly giving the ravers what they wanted. Um, Throw up different challenges all the way along, you know what I mean? So I think... Um, I think my worst year was before I went to Australia, 97, 98, something like that. Um, the back end of the tax thing, coming out of that, and then going to Australia and seeing a completely different world. And I think, you know, so coming back and doing stuff, I don't think my heart was into it as much as it was prior. Um, it wasn't done with this, it, it wasn't done with the same enthusiasm. There was, uh, money-orientated individuals behind the back of it uh, that didn't hold the same values, i.e. Sal, you know, he, he, he like openly admitted he was in it for the money, so it didn't sit well with us, you know what I mean? So it, it didn't sit well with the ethos of what Fiber Life was about. In terms of that then, Wayne Smith asks, uh, is there anything you would change if you were to have your time again? Anything I could change if I had my time? No, because I don't think you could change it. You know, it, like I say, it just happened. It was part of the moment. It was understanding that we was very grateful because we understood we lived in that moment. You know, and we understood that through Fossil. Like I say, we knew that this was um, the, probably the best time of our lives. And that's what so many people tell me today. You know, they've gone on and they've moved forward with their lives and they've had children and kids and uh, you know in the raver tops for instance the thing that slip mat runs now um is another way to get old ravers out with their kids just to listen to an hour of slip mat you know what i mean it's not about i will say that, all, is it? I, they're not great by the way <laughs> Sorry? 
I will say they're Sorry. not great. I've taken my kid along to one of these, and they're not fantastic. They're very quiet, and uh, and the music is. If you like, if you like rare tunes, you're not going to get them there. But you know, they're still yeah. there. But it's what in what other scene has that happened? It hasn't, has it? Do you know what I mean? I mean, going back to when Vibelite and the reason that Vibelite stood the test of time is because we understood what ravers wanted. And then we appealed to an under-18s crowd and we did under-18s events because they took off massively, didn't they? You know what I mean? So that crossed two, three spectrums. And some of those kids that was coming to Bible-like teens parties, 13 and 14, became artists within themselves and stand in the scene state, MC Friction, you know, and Joey Riot and people like that. They were, they were all, you know, the kids, the kids of, you know, early years, the teenagers, a span the decade there was a the new rave was on the scene you know so well listen gary it's been a joy and a pleasure to talk to you mate Thanks for your time i know you don't give many interviews and so uh i think we've really Probably got to do any more to be honest i don't think you need to you've given so much i encourage other promoters and djs to come on onto this show, if you invite them or if they ever get on, uh, bear in mind, listen to the shows, listen to what's being said. Let's categorise this entire industry that's lasted 30 years and, and tell other stories and tell your grievances near it. But understood what part you've played in that. You have played a part in this scene. Right? Whether you're a raver, a DJ, an MC, a promoter, or even a dealer, we've all had parts to play in this. We should all be grateful for the part that we played in it and i wish everybody well and celebrate it as well gary you're a star and a legend thank you so much for your time and uh, i'm sure at some point in the future we will get you on again maybe it won't be 25 years though yeah okay i mean if you want me not oh, man you're a star <laughs> gary take it easy buddy cheers tom take care well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now in all video platforms, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s. Rave podcast. All donations will be ploughed back into the podcast, including expenses to get around the country, interviewing some of your rave favourites, and also improving our equipment. 